I'm Michael Barber, and this is the Accomplishment Podcast. It's intriguing how much can be learnt about accomplishment from achieving things in the field of elite sport. When looking for patterns of success, it seems that what it takes to excel in sport can so often be transferred to other disciplines, to politics and science, to education and business. Fran Miller was one of the founders of Team Sky and then the CEO of Team Ineos. Today, she's CEO of the high-end clothing company, Bellstaff. A keen cyclist herself, during her career, she played a key role in the success of the world's number one cycling team. With Britain's Bradley Wiggins winning the Tour de France for the first time in 2012, and then Chris Froome, Geraint Thomas and others going on to win several more Tours de France and other Grand Tours in the years that followed. I wanted to understand what she's taken from the world of sport to the world of business at Bellstaff. But to start with, I was interested in her role at Team Sky, where she was head of winning behaviours. My favourite job title ever. What did it involve and what did it mean? Head of Winning Behaviour, yes, it was a really unusual job title. I'd obviously been involved with Brailsford, Rod Ellingworth, Tim Kerrison, setting up Team Sky from sort of 2008, yes. started racing in 2010, stated ambition of winning the tour within five years with a clean British rider, um, which we achieved in 2012, so kind of three years ahead of schedule. But the, the challenge we had there was we obviously had Bradley Wiggins um, in 2012, Chris Froome in 2013. It was a really quite difficult time for the team. You know, there, there was several issues going on, um, a big divide between Chris and Bradley that's been very well documented, fundamentally different culture and belief system of people coming into the organisation who hadn't been on that original sort of trailblazing journey of let's try and win the tour. Suddenly they were joining a team where we had won the tour twice and we just felt we had a moment in time where we had to kind of capture and codify the culture to ensure that we were able to maintain the level of success we were having. So Dave, myself and Steve worked really hard on creating a programme you're talking about Steve Peters, is that right? The, the, the famous sports psychologist. Yeah, yes. Dr. Steve okay. Peters. Yeah, so yeah, yeah incredible man. Um, and so he, we we worked together, sort of pretty much straight off the back of Chris Freeman's victory in 2013, recognizing that we were starting to see this sort of divide within the team, recognizing we were in a very different place to where we had been, and needing to codify the culture that had got us that level of success. And so that was the journey. Basically, we we went on and yeah. created the winning behaviors, of which I became the head. On my desktop, I have five or six slides on what the winning behaviours are. I find it really inspiring. I find it works in any kind of organisation you care to present. If you're a school teacher or running a hospital or running a sports club or Mm -hmm. trying to get something done in government or running a big business as you are now, I think the winning behaviours are still relevant, but I'd love to hear your view, A, of what they are and B, whether you think I'm right about that. We didn't want to just tell people what they were. So um, from a series of interviews, sessions, workshops with the team, we came up with five distinct areas. You're going to test me now. One of them was yeah. self. Right. One of them was team. One of them was performance first. One of them was communication. And one of them was marginal gains, effectively. So constant yeah. improvement. So those five areas. And basically what, what we did was within each area, we cre- and they weren't rocket science, Michael. They were very, very simple. So things like self were 
how am I turning up for the team? How am I behaving? You know, am I in control of my emotions? Am I, do I bring a positive attitude? Am I smiling? Am I proactive? You know, that the team one was what's my impact on the team. So am I a team player? Am I positive about the team? Do I wear my team kit? You know, communication was, I reply to emails, I pick up my phone, you know, they were incredibly simple. They were really easy to self-reflect upon. And yeah, they, I absolutely agree with you. They apply anywhere. One of them that I thought was very powerful, which I think was under the communication heading, was that if you've got a complaint about somebody, take maybe the problem it, to the person. Yeah, take the problem <laughs> exactly. Did that work? Yeah, I mean, I think it's two sided. I think it's really interesting because one of the, it's one of the things I've implemented in Bellstaff as well, and and I think it's the initial reaction to that for most people is to say, have you know, have you spoken to them? But it's it's also the job of the person to whom you are moaning to say, yeah. have you taken it to them? So it's not just for you to be like, I need to take this problem to the person. It's if you are then in a culture where someone comes to you and moans, don't get into bed with them about it and start moaning as well, because that's a losing behavior. So, you know, saying to somebody, have you had this conversation with them? And one of Steve's real things was firstly ask, has the person had the conversation with the person they're complaining about or they're struggling with? If they haven't, ask them why, because sometimes people can feel intimidated, worried, concerned, nervous, you know, or there's a whole host of reasons why somebody might not be doing that. Then if they don't feel able to do it themselves, offer them the chance to be the mediator for them. So it's like, I'm not going to stand and listen to you moan, but I will get you both in a room and mediate a conversation between you. And that's really powerful. And I, I still use that to this day. If I look at the results of Team Sky, you, you had after those first two Tour de France, you had a slightly difficult year, but then you had this sensational mm-hmm. run of success where mm-hmm. in addition to winning the Tour de France regularly, you started adding the Giro and the Vuelta <laughs> and lots yeah. of other races. And how much was winning behaviours at the heart of that? I think winning behaviours was a pillar of it. You know, I think it would be unfair to say it was the sole thing. I think what winning behaviours did, and and the lesson I have taken in my career from winning behaviours, is it enabled us to codify a culture that was very difficult to codify, you know, to, to explain to people what does it mean to work here in a way that isn't trite and doesn't feel generic I go to so many places where people have like respect or integrity and I'm like but what does that actually mean for you here and how are you going to make that work here so I think what it did was it gave us a really clear playbook by which it was if you saw certain behaviors that were contributing to you know dead time losing time anything else you, you were able to very quickly identify it and say hang on we don't do that here and I think that was really powerful that culture of being able to check and challenge each other push each other, grow, develop, learn. It sat at the, the base of that, that you then need the people, the methodology, everything else to, to then go after the goal. What struck me was how everybody saw their role as contributing to getting Chris Froome, as it was mm-hmm. at that time, over the line at the front of the Tour de France every year. Nobody thought they had any other purpose than ensuring that Team Sky was a winning team. And that that applied to the mechanics, the people who washed the bikes when they came in, the people who uh, did all the the cleaning of the hotel rooms, the people who did the nutrition, you name it, everybody was focused on winning the cycle race. And that alignment came from, I guess, from leadership and from the commitment of the elite cyclists, as well as from the winning behaviours. Yeah, I mean, I think without a shadow of a doubt, you know, the, the way that we approach things was an outcome focus. So I think, you know, yes, we absolutely at the top of the tree was Chris Froome's going to win the tour. I think the clever thing about what we were able to do as an organization was we were then able to identify of all of the component parts of that, what was everyone else's intrinsic motivation to succeed? So, you know, there aren't many young, talented endurance road cyclists who are going to spend their entire career wanting to ride in a team that only thinks about Chris Froome. So what we did was cascading that goal 
and making it really, you know, someone like a Luke Rowe, for example, who came into the team as a young 19, 20 year old, his first ever team, you know, never going to win the tour, big classics rider. How, how do you motivate him to want to go after that goal? And I think what we developed brilliantly was this kind of really matrixed, very integrated plan where everyone had their own goals and their own things they were motivated by, but they all laddered up to being basically being the best team in the world and facilitating Chris winning the tour. And I think that was the clever bit of it. It wasn't just we're all motivated to, to help Chris win, which we were, but we also had everyone knew their role. So, you know, Luke's was, I want to be the best road captain in the world because if I'm the best road captain in the world, Chris stands a better chance of winning the tour. And he was intrinsically motivated to do that. And we had that across the organization, you know, best mechanics, best carers, wanted to be, wanted to be, you know, the lead carer on the Tour de France, whatever it was, everyone had their own goal that if you unpicked it and you looked at why they had that goal, it did actually ladder up to, to victory at the tour or victory at a certain bike race. I remember conversations with the guy who, I've forgotten his name, who drove the bus, the team bus. Claudio Lucchini. Cloud. Yeah. yeah. He fitted that perfectly. He yeah. knew exactly what his job was. He yeah. obviously had to get the bus to the right place at the right time, which he did anyway. But, but the way he interacted with the people getting on and off the bus, all of those things, every detail he was on top of. And again, it's something that I use here all the time, which is the difference between a dream and a, and a goal. And it's like winning the tour is a dream, right? If the entire team puts it, all of its effort, all its energy, all of its focus into just winning the tour, that can cause actually quite a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety. It's, ultimately, it's beyond our control. It's certainly beyond the control of the bus driver. But what's not beyond the control of a bus driver is having the cleanest bus in the peloton, getting the best possible parking space, making sure the athletes are as best recovered as they can be, finding the shortest routes. You know, so, so all of those little laddered up goals that you could go through with, with a Claudio and say, this is your contribution to the tour. If we don't win the tour, that's not on you, Claudio. But if the bus is dirty or if we're late somewhere or we get lost, that is on you. And that, again, that kind of being able to lock those two things together is what eventually creates the flywheel. So you've got all that going and then you're using, with the leadership of Tim Kerrison and others, you're using amazing data to inform decisions. Mm. Just talk about that because I was, I'd spent years in government trying to use data to inform decisions and it did, but the, the level and the depth and the precision that you were aspiring to was very, very impressive to me. Yes, data was hugely important. And, and I think Tim himself would say it was. But I also think that there was an element of knowing all of the component parts that, that went into a performance. So some of it was data, some of it was intangible stuff, some of it was incredibly tangible things like the beds they slept in or the, 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 the skin suits they wore or anything else. So I think, um, you know, from a data informed perspective, the sport was in the dark ages when we started, yeah. you know, not many people were using SRMs, nobody was really doing any kind of, you know, sort of biometric testing or anything else. And I think we, we definitely pioneered you know, some of that, I mean, we were doing warm ups and warm downs and people thought we were completely bonkers, but now everybody does it, you know? So, yeah. so yes, there was a lot of that, but I think for me, I think there was a little bit of a misconception that we were just data. I actually think yeah. it was the human element of what we did that made us so good. Yes. Or the combination perhaps. Yeah, yeah. indeed. Yeah. The combination. You were head of winning behaviors. You were also director of business operations, yeah. I think at the same time. And there's a lot of business operations in a cycling team aren't they you've got it first of all you've got to have really good pinarello bikes to give yeah. to the riders and they've all got to work etc etc it's easy when you look at such a big success to talk about the inspiration but the kind of nuts and bolts literally the nuts and bolts in in the case of a bike that's really important as well how did you manage that we were very clear there was the performance team and the, and the athletes and that was sacrosanct you know their time was sacrosanct their approach was sacrosanct 
you could never allow anything that was a business function or a business requirement to impact performance. We were really, really fastidious about that. Um, and so my job was effectively to create a, a sort of umbrella that barriered that team from sponsor requests, shareholder requirements, media requests and everything else. And so my job was twofold. One, making sure that the team operated, like you say, had the right bikes, had the right equipment, had the right things at the right time and a, a logistics department that was really well oiled and, and well drilled but also making sure that we provided air cover to the performance. We were in quite a lucky period of the sport because we were winning, because we were best in the world, because we were relatively new on the scene. We could set standards around what could and couldn't be asked of our athletes. I don't think you'd get away with now. You know, no, you can't interview Bradley Wiggins after a bike race. No, you can't speak to Chris Froome or, you know, or Chris can't fly to somewhere to do a test for you. He has to stay here. We were really, really, like I say, fastidious about that. And, so, and my job was making sure that at all times, everyone in the non-performance bit of the business was thinking about performance. Later, you became CEO of the Inos Grenadiers. That was Team that Inos, was, before they were the Grenadiers. Team. Obviously, Jeremy Derrick decided to end the partnership just as the Comcast deal with Sky with was Sky, coming on board. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that finished in 2018, just after we'd won the tour with, with um, Geraint. We then got acquired by um, Sir Jim Ratcliffe and became Team Ineos. Originally, I had sort of said I was going to leave the team. Having watched Geraint win the tour, I was like, I have nothing left to do in this sport. Yeah, so, so Fran and I know the cycling stuff, but she's talking about Geraint oh, sorry, Thomas, yeah. the brilliant Welsh cyclist who yeah. had been a loyal, devoted and wonderful team yeah. player and then yeah. finally won the tour in 2018. And was everything everything that I believed in in the sport. I'd seen him from a kid. I'd seen him work incredibly hard, you know, fall and get back up, fall and get back up. For him to then get given this chance and, and get it and grab it with both hands and win it, I was like, this is never going to be topped when he won the tour. So I had sort of already decided emotionally that I was probably going to move on. Then Sky decided to leave. Dave asked me to stay um, and help him find a new partner, which I said I would. So I became CEO, helped them do the transition into Team Ineos, which was a mammoth undertaking. You know, we, we went from Team Sky, everything. I mean, if you came to the team, Michael, you know, the towels were Team Sky, the bottles were Team Sky. Yeah. Like if you, if yeah. it stood still long enough, we stuck a logo on it. And we had to overnight become Team Ineos. And originally that was going to happen um, at the end of the year. Then it became doing it before the tour. Then it became doing it before the Giro. So we had basically three months to convert the entire team, which was massive. Alongside that, you also took on a role in <laughs> Elliot Kipchoge breaking the two-hour time yeah. for a marathon. And I read about resurfacing the road in Vienna and, <laughs> Everything. Uh, and all it was... that. It was a kind of obsession with detail yeah. to get that break. Do, do you want to just comment on that? I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, having said I didn't think I would top Garrett Thomas winning the tour, going and helping break the two-hour marathon barrier with Elliot was not actually just because of the performance. The job that I did was just, I had such a good time. Dave came in and effectively created a performance strategy, um, which very cleverly you know, and simply was, we're not going to get Elliot Kipchoge better from a performance perspective in six months, which is the time frame we had, but we can execute better. So how do we execute better than, has, than Nike had done in Monza in the 2017 yeah. attempt? Um, and so everything became about perfect execution, um, which is kind of my MO. So I was like right. in my happy place. It was pure delivery. Um, and it was everything, like you say, we were weighing bottles to make sure that he was taking on the right amount of fluid. We resurfaced the road. We added a 2% incline to a curve to make sure that as they came around the corner, they got a tiny little bit of lift because it was we had a little bit of an off camber. So we raised the road by 2%. We trained 42 of the world's best 5K and 10K runners to run in, in combination with him to enable him to get the, the best pocket of air to run behind. I mean, I could literally, there's a thousand things that we did, but all of it was execution. What you did with the runners that running in front of Elliot, the way you set them out on the road, 
contradicted all the yes. previous experience, but you'd proved it with science, as it were, yeah. hadn't you? So we had the amazing Robbie Ketchell, who was from the cycling team. Um, he was a you know sort of sports scientist and an aerodynamicist. Um, he had looked at it and said he felt that inverting the, the traditional V, so obviously most people are familiar with runners running yeah. in a, with a V in front of them. He felt if you inverted that V and actually put two runners in front of Elliot and then an, a runner behind him, what you would create is effectively a pocket of air because as the disrupted air comes round, it hits the last runner and then it sort of buffets round Elliot. It was, and, and all the runners were like, never going to work, not possible, not going to happen. Doesn't matter how good this concept is in theory in the wind tunnel, it's impossible to run that way. And Elliot, I think, to be fair to him, was like, well, let's try. And so in Kenya, we've got aerial drone shots of him walking it, jogging it, then running it. And it worked. And and so we then had to train in teams of seven because nobody could run at Elliot's pace for any particular length of time. So in teams of seven, in 4K laps, we had them running in the K and then we were bringing them off and new teams were coming in. We had 42 guys split into teams of seven and they were switching every 4K. So it was a, it was a massive undertaking and hugely risky. The level of detail in what you just said is remarkable yeah so and that's scratching the surface it was genuinely it, it would be a seven hour podcast to go through all of it it was bonkers you've been through three years at bellstaff first of all i'd love you to just talk about what it's like doing the bellstaff job after what you've done in the past but also then like to ask you some questions about your learnings from the past how they've applied into bellstaff came into the role was given a very a pretty much a blank sheet of paper by um our owners um and they which is in EOS, so it's the same organization as did the Elliot kipchoge thing and run the cycling team uh, the, the brand was failing losing a huge amount of money w- wasn't really able to get over the 50 million euro um revenue ceiling and they sort of said, we're going to give it one last roll of the dice and we'd like you to give it a try. So I was set the target of getting to operationally break even, um, not shutting any stores, building e-com, not changing the brand, as in like, don't mess with the brand. Um, and getting 50% of the, which is very INEOS approach, get 50% of the um, cost base out of the business. Um, and so I... I've never run a PL. I've been CEO of the cycling team, but cycling is a cost center. It's not it's not a PL based business. I've never worked in fashion. I've never worked in one place. I've never worked in a centralized program. You know, cycling is a is a geographically spread team. So my day to day here is still learning. I mean, I I sort of remember someone telling me about the curve of kind of confidence versus competency. And I came in incredibly confident with no competence at all. And I now feel like I've got more competence, but my confidence has dropped because I'm like, oh my God, there's still so much I don't know. But it's amazing and I've loved it. And are you making progress on the, yeah, on, the on the hard numbers? Yeah, yeah. so we're pretty much at operationally break-even um, after three years. We've had a bit of a headwind this year because of the market and cost of living crisis and everything else. We'll be there or there about break-even. We've increased the revenue by 50%. We've pretty much turned it around, touch wood. <laughs> but a lot of work to do now. And so all that experience you had in a set of winning behaviours, Director mm. of Business Operations, uh, CEO in Team Sky and Ineos, how does that apply into turning around Bellstaff? In every single way, I had always believed that what we had done within Team Ineos, Team Sky was applicable elsewhere, and I felt that it would get success elsewhere. I also really wanted to come and try it for myself and see if I could take some of what I consider to be my learnings from it and, you know, not in a really high performance environment, apply some of those learnings and and see if I could develop my own approach. Um, And it has been very successful. I think it's, it's been it's been a really interesting journey to understand. So if you if you take the, the methodology that we use within at the very highest level within Team Sky, which is outcome focus, analyze the demands of the event, get podium people, go after the marginal gains, you know, and you, and you look at the sort of the levels of that, 
you can apply all of that to business you know so outcome focus what is it we're trying to do how are we going to try and do it analyze the demand of the event who's the competition what's our product range how, who's the who's the customer how are we going after it you know looking at sort of each of the component parts of that and the milestones and how we're going to measure it and podium people how do you make sure you've got the best people in the best roles and how do you measure that talent speaking openly we're not at the marginal gains stage yet <laughs> right. because I think marginal gains have been a little, sometimes a little bit misunderstood. You've got to be really, really good to then start applying marginal gains because it's the marginal gains that give you the discretionary performance over and above that kind of baseline excellence. We're, we're still working towards baseline excellence. And then I think you can start leveling on the, the marginal gain. What struck me is that what works in business and in elite sport and in government and in science and even in art there's this pattern of accomplishment of mm. great things that suggests a kind of transferable knowledge set that you can apply into difficult challenges. 100% there is. I think the biggest difference that I've really noticed here now, actually it's, it's been in the last probably year, 18 months, so halfway through the journey of it all, is the difference between working in a truly high performance environment where you're going after a you know, flagship win, as it were. So it's whether that's a football team going after, you know, whether they're positioned in the Premier League or whether that's a cycling team going after Tour de France or or any sporting endeavour or an endeavour that has an end, right? Like a kind of an end goal. I think there's a very different mindset that's required for that to what you have in a business on a day-to-day basis. And in cycling, you particularly in Team Sky, where by 2013, 14, 15, we were dealing with 100 people, the vast majority of whom were one of the best in the world at what they did. Getting people like that motivated, on point, listening, you know, paying attention, living by winning behaviours is, is easier <laughs> than getting a 22-year-old just out of university, first job, um, you know, wants to party at the weekends, wants to, wants to leave the work at five o'clock, um, which, of which I have no problem with, but getting them motivated to understand we're going after this, what feels like a, I don't care, goal. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I don't care if you're profitable or not, as long as I get paid. So, um, so trying to kind of build a culture that is high performance in an environment that doesn't have that intrinsic performance connectivity has been the biggest challenge and the most enjoyable challenge because then it, then you go back to the thing that I spoke about at the very beginning, which is what are people intrinsically motivated by in an organization and how do you light the fire underneath them to drive yeah. that intrinsic motivation? The amazing bit about it is I absolutely love finding people who don't think they're intrinsically motivated by their job right. and, and helping them unlock what that could mean for them and, and the role that that will play in the rest of their careers, right? The rest of their lives. You know, it's like if you can help somebody in a, in a job at Bellstaff go from being a bit disinterested, don't really mind, turn up for the paycheck to suddenly really driven, wanting to be their best, spotting where they can get better, helping their colleagues be better. I take a huge amount of satisfaction yes. and pleasure from that. I want to um, spend the last few minutes of our conversation talking about two or three people who I know have been very influential in your life and career. One is your brother, who was a top cyclist, Dave Miller, but he wasn't just a great cyclist. He was a big influence on the way you think about the world and all of that. Tell us about who he is, what he's done and how he's influenced you. So my brother is two years older than me, incredibly talented, um, not just at cycling. He's a creative, a real creative thinker, big reader, a bit of a polymath, knows all sorts about all sorts. Um, came into cycling um, for a whole host of reasons, but not because he necessarily wanted to be a road cyclist. It, it sort of crept up on him um, by 15 or 16. He got spotted um, very young and signed very young into a team in France. Cycling back in the 
sort of ni- late 90s was very much in the UK an odd niche sport and so for a kid to want to go and be a pro cyclist was very weird you know we didn't know anything about it we weren't from a cycling family he became very very successful very young first tour de france wore the yellow jersey for four days became world champion but was in the sport at the time of of endemic doping um, and doped ucpo uh, confessed to doping in 2004 served a two-year ban and decided to come back and basically really work to help the sport move beyond its doping past and educate people about the impact of doping on athletes. And I think the, the biggest influence he's had on me is that he was this talented, bright-eyed, you know, he's a very handsome guy. His nickname was the, Dan, the Le Dandy in France, you know, speaks fluent French. And the sport sucked the life out of him. It took his soul away in many ways. And, and watching that happen... I remember thinking, God, I would never want this to happen to somebody else. Um, and so when I got the opportunity to work at Team Sky, or to set Team Sky up and it to be clean and a zero tolerance policy and with Brailsford and with Steve and creating this kind of safe environment with young for young British talent, for me, it was like, uh, sign, where do I have to sign? I'm, I'm in. I want to do it. And that's why I think Geraint winning the tour for me, not you know, because I'd known him that whole way through the journey you know, my brother did a TED talk and he said at the end that what I was able to do for Geraint is what I wasn't able to do for him. And that right. is very much what I felt like. I felt like I'd been able to protect him. I've been able to help him go on that journey. I've been able to support him and make sure that he fulfilled his potential without ever having to cheat. And and being able to do that was a was the kind of final bit for me in my career where I was like, okay, tick, I've done the bit. I've laid that ghost to rest. The other person who uh, you mentioned a couple of times is Steve Peters, the psychologist. Yes. Um, psychiatrist actually he's a forensic psych yeah what was his influence on you specifically Fran? uh in every way i wouldn't be the person i am if i hadn't met steve i met steve when i was early 20s ball of you know enthusiasm ambition energy probably quite a lot of aggression and he just has always been not only a cheerleader of mine and a supporter of mine but an incredible mentor in terms of how do I get the best out of myself? And honestly, in the, in the journey of the last 20 years, the impact that Steve has had on me has been profound. He has literally changed my view of life, the way I approach life. My, I remember w- once having a conversation with him and him saying, this was in probably the 2009, 10, so just we started racing with Team Sky just after the Beijing Olympic Games. Um, and he said, if I could have 10 happy athletes or 10 Olympic gold medals, I would, te- I would take the 10 happy athletes. And I remember thinking, well, and the older I've got and the more I've worked in the environment I'm in now, I will take happy people every day of the week. And I think that actually providing somewhere that people can really, I think because happy people fulfill their, are more likely to fulfill their potential when they're not driven by fear and concern. You know, that's something really important to me. So your conclusion there is that um, you don't necessarily have to choose between no. happy and winning. Exactly. But and if you choose happy you can win if you just choose winning to the exclusion of happiness. You're on a downward slide. Is that is that, yes. is that a fair summary? Hundred percent, and it's dangerous. You know, the just yeah. choosing winning is is a yeah. very dangerous slope. Last influence on your life is clearly the great Dave Brailsford. But talk about mm. Dave's influence on you first. From my perspective, a lot of the methodology that I now use, I, I learned from Dave. Um, you know, I apply it differently. I think we have slightly different values and different approach in terms of how we go about things on a day to day basis. The vast majority of the, of the methodology is from him, and, and even now, when I bump into him for coffee or we, you know, we we have a catch up, we'll be bouncing ideas off each other. And oh, have you tried this? Have you tried that? And, and I will always come away from it with like gems of wisdom. That I think oh, I wouldn't have thought of that. <laughs> so yeah, he's he's you know he he pushes 
He's incredibly demanding. He is very difficult to work with, but incredibly inspiring. That you know, that first ten years I worked with him from sort of two thousand and six, seven to, to sort of seventeen, eighteen, I, I would have followed him into a fire. You know, he he yeah. was the single most inspirational, visionary, talented person I think I've ever encountered. What are your plans for the next two to three years? Are you gonna you're gonna keep building on the success at Bellstaff? The other thing I have learned from my career and from Brailsford probably is, you know, resting on your laurels isn't really an option. It's not something I enjoy. I don't like coasting. I don't like, right. you know, kind of sta- the status quo. So, yeah, if, if I can if I can continue to grow it, build it, get better, move on, make it bigger, make it better, then 100% that's what I want to do. The minute it stops being a challenge, I think I'd like to move on and do something else. But right now it's still a really big challenge. <laughs> so there's Brilliant. still plenty to go after. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Fran. Really appreciate the conversation. Thanks, Michael. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the Accomplishment Podcast and my thanks to guest Fran Miller. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at MichaelBarber9 and feel free to suggest guests whose stories of change you'd like to hear. There's also a book that accompanies this podcast, Accomplishment, How to Achieve Ambitious and Challenging Things, published by Penguin. Don't forget to review the Accomplishment podcast and subscribe so you don't miss great game changers telling their stories on how to get things done. This podcast is produced by Siobhan O'Connell, thanks to her and to the rest of the team.